Thank you, everybody, for joining us today with the Learn With Lowell Show. I'm Lowell, your host. In this show, we will learn together how and why leaders, scientists, and everyday people build the change that they want to see into the world, the strategies, ideas, failures, tactics, um, the books that change their lives. You name it, you'll get a real good sense of how, why, and where they're doing it. You also hear the laughs and genuine passion behind what they're doing as well. And in every episode, the objective is, if you stay curious, you will learn something. We also have a YouTube that we're slowly building. We just recently started this. There's also clips. So if you want to get a quick snapshot or find a specific component of this, this is a good thing to be subscribed to. Those will be in the show notes as well. We also have a website, learnwithwold.com. And we're found anywhere that uh, podcasts are. In fact, if you listen to podcasts somewhere and we're not there, message me about it because I will fix that. <laughs> Today, we are joined with Rashab Jane. He's the CEO and co-founder of Fermat. Here's a quick rundown of his background. He has a PhD from he has a PhD from MIT. He has a graduate degree from Stanford uh, Business School. He has a finance degree from Wharton. He has a degree from Imperial College of London. He has a, ma a master's degree in material science from University of Pennsylvania. He has a deep, deep technical knowledge. Now, Fermat is about the creative economy and building the bridge between brands and creators, so that they both can make money and do a better job at. Uh, working with consumers, I, anyone who's listening and enjoying this content would be someone that would be interested in what he's building because what he's trying to do is make your lives easier in finding things that you enjoy and helping support their creatives that you care about. Here's a brief rundown of what you get into in this episode. We go through his thought process, strategy, and tactics he went through from going from a scientist, as you heard, to being a business leader. He has challenges for scientists, experts, and people in academia, as well as recent grads get themselves out of that pigeonhole way of thinking into where they want to be, whether it's leader or uh, starting a business. We also spent a large section on how to communicate and how to communicate effectively, basically capitalizing on your win, failures that he's experienced and how he went from a four out of 10 to an eight out of 10 and communicating effectively with other people. We get very specific on that. And we talk about examples of that. Uh, if you, if you were in the world and you're doing anything that you care about, you, you're going to want to listen to that section. We talk about creative economy uh, strategies and tactics. We talk about biographies of military leadership, books that affected his life. And in summary, this is the perfect interview for anyone who is living on the internet, uh, is a creator or consumer, is interested in the creative economy, is a PhD scientist, expert, and wants to transition to being a leader somewhere, whether it's on their team or starting a business. So let's stay curious and learn about Rashid Jain and his company, Ferment. It's like such a transition, I think, where it's like, how does that stuff affect you now? And I'm just kind of curious about the overall transition of it's, it didn't happen overnight, right? Like it's like over like a decade. So I'm just curious, like, what was that like for you? And, and how does that still affect you today when you make decisions and and look at uh, ideas and stuff? Yeah, no, I think it's a great question. So, yeah, like you like you said, I actually started off by getting an education in like material science, physics and business. So when I went to Penn, there's like this dual degree program where you could do both. And there's always been like two things that have fascinated me to no end. One is just like, how does the world work? Which for me that manifested as like physics. And then the second one was, how do you bring large impact to the world? Which to mm -hmm. me, the answer was always business. And so I've always been like torn <laughs> between these two things. And so um, it just turns out that I graduated into the last recession. So in like the 0809 period. And so the idea of going into business at that time, while sentiment was so negative, 
like people's people's um ways of operating in business at that time was really quite different because of the because of the sentiment and because of the downturn and so I was like great this actually makes it easier for me to decide to just go into academia and really really like quench my thirst for essentially knowledge right and so that's what like drove me into the PhD but even when I was doing my PhD I actually started two businesses <clears throat> and so that side of me never left and then like one thing led to another I ended up working at an ad tech company and building new businesses inside of that ad tech company and so that's sort of how the two sides have always played with each other is I've always had this strong desire to understand how the world works and then I've always been trying to build something that I can scale out to bring bring to the rest of the world and so even today I would say that my way of business building is like very much like a scientist so it is highly experimentally driven and really trying to ask what are the right experiments to deploy into the market in order to get the signals back of what works what adds value and why and so like that's how the two sides have always like lived together throughout throughout my journey it's not um like the scientific method is a beautiful tool to figure anything out and i think sometimes i know a lot of scientists it's like the more you learn the more you kind of get like pigeonholed in a way of thinking and um so i think probably like half the battle was just kind of like realizing that the tools like the thought process that you've developed and getting a phd and learning these these uh mechanisms can be applied in these other ways and so it's it's cool that you're building businesses along the way so like your brain couldn't like get stratified and make that a harder transition i, I don't to the extent that that was uh difficult but i have noted in a lot of scientists friends of mine where it's like like the, the phd is almost like a shackle that they need to like kind of throw off and start seeing how like applicable that that um that really deep ability to teach yourself something and then be an expert on it and then apply it in so many different ways. That's a really good, that's a, an asset that you really don't see a lot of PhD smart people in that regard. There's a lot of different types of smart people, of course, um, being founders. They're usually like a CTO or like one of the first hires. Yeah, I think that actually, and I'm curious what your view on this is, but my, my belief is that I think that it's actually like one of the things that most PhD programs get wrong, um, which is they don't actually teach candidates how to take advantage of the skills that they're building as a PhD to do jobs other than becoming a professor. Because mm. actually the very best PhDs that I knew ended up becoming people who would have been excellent business leaders or founders themselves because at the end of the day the thing that makes you really successful as a researcher is actually your ability to communicate the ideas that you're working on yes you need to be able to work on the ideas it's sort of like back wheel front wheel of a bicycle where like the back wheel of the bicycle is yes you have to be able to produce good research but it doesn't get you anywhere without the front wheel which is how do you communicate what you're working on right and so that skill set I think is extremely applicable to the founder skill set. And yeah, I, I think most of the successful, even researchers that I know are very good at that. So no, I agree. I see it from more like the evidence of it. I haven't been in a PhD program, um, but a lot, I, I see the people who come out of it. I see where they go and kind of the stress that they have as they move through those, um, you know, a periods of ignorance, I, I guess, like it, it's a very, like, especially if you haven't been kind of 
pushed to try to break those boxes and those molds and you're being a, being put into a new environment like what are you going to do and who who's your advisors as well which is kind of interesting like if if you all your advisors are academics like even if they could be really well-meaning and helping you want to do whatever you want to do but their bend is kind of going to be towards their skill set because that's what they're best able to be like hey this is how i would do stuff and so they're kind of skewing you without even trying to skew you and so i don't know to the extent um phds have like what business schools have where you have like um competitions and stuff but i think it'd be really interesting to have like a, a panel of advisors that are uh, more like uh have more breadth to them and it's not just academics it could have like in industrial people and then startup people and so you can have like you know q a's with these individuals to kind of counteract that over slant towards academia just based on the fact that you're talking to people that their entire lives is academia this is an entirely different way of survival um as far as i can tell and as well as i even building a company if you use the academic model of a research lab and you trans transplant it into a startup it does not do that does not go well like the startup has is a much faster and uh and they have like different ways of, of doing things. And that's, a, that's usually been a fun thing because I'm an advisor for a number of startups and uh, like building the engine is usually the thing that they don't even realize that is something they need to do in terms of like the, the people element as well. So there's a lot of things that like the skills are there, but it's not like a well-rounded skill to make use of it. Like you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. I totally, I totally agree with that. Yeah. I think it's one of those things where you need to know how to adopt it to the different incentives that a business has versus an academic lab has, right? Um, and so you want to like not try to copy the way of working in academia in business, but you want to like take inspiration instead. Yeah. And I think that that, if, if you were to take that approach and then say, actually, yes, but in this context, I need to optimize for this other set of outcomes. I think that, yeah, it can lead to like very good outcomes, right? Like, like Google, right? It started by two X PhDs. And they actually took a lot of inspiration from how their labs worked in order to design how the organization would work. Another, uh, I think, advantage of people with PhDs is they tend to be a bit more humble. Like if I ask a PhD a question, they'll say, I don't know. Or they'll like, the answer will be like very <laughs> math-based, I guess. Where like, if you talk to someone who just, let's say just is just in the startup thing, they might try to BS you a little bit. They not even, might not even realize they're doing it. But it's like, I have to like sit there and think, to what extent does this person know what they're talking about? <laughs> and, then, and then how much is this? It's just like, they're kind of guessing, which is fine. You know, it's the same thing. But like, if you have the the knowledge, like, oh, I don't know, give me like five minutes. I'll go look it up and come back to you. Like, that's a more interesting conversation. Because like, I'll, I trust that they did something, and then we can have a conversation about it. So the the humbleness of kind of checking your math is, is something I think is probably really strong. Um, I don't know, in your experience with the many different types of people you come into, if that's another asset that comes in, like, the humble, well, it's also a double-edged sword, right? Like when you're trying to uh, raise money or whatever, if you're too humble, then it probably doesn't go too far, uh, you know, but if you're too, you know, arrogant, then you end up like Elizabeth Holmes and, you know, that's not good either. So. I mean, but she was good at fundraising. So yeah, yeah that was like her own. Well, yeah, yeah I don't think life's going to end well. <laughs> so like, uh, Oh, I, I, I'm not saying that it was a good, I'm not saying that what she did was good. I'm yeah, just yeah. saying that um, there's something to be said about the fact that she raised funding. Uh, now oh, yeah, she, she didn't raise good. funding from traditional VCs. So, I mean, anyway, I don't, I, I don't want to even sound like I'm in any way, shape or form defending what she did. No, no, no. <laughs> Which, I, I, you're, like, you're, I, I you're appreciating the skills. Not, so. <laughs> you're appreciating the yeah, skills. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. for, yeah. 
for people who are, let's say in a PhD program or are in that position of thinking like, what am I going to do next? I just got my PhD. This is fantastic. I just worked for this. What are some things that like some ways that you encourage them to challenge themselves to see if, if like kind of the waters you swim in might be fun for them? Like, are there like looking back where they're, there are pivotal, pivotal ways that you found to like break those molds of getting stuck in that way of thinking of just academia that might be helpful for people with a uh, better kind of in that life? A hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, I think that there were like two things that I tactical things that I did that like very much helped me. The first is that I actually did a summer internship at like a venture fund. So I got my advisor to okay me taking time off of lab work in order to go and actually flex my business skills in the, in the specific domain that I wanted to flex them in, which is in the startup world. So I actually went and worked in VC for a summer. And then the second one was during the school year or during the semesters, I was like building businesses on the side, which was extremely valuable because at a lot of universities, so I happen to go to MIT, they have like all of these startup competitions and things like that. A lot of universities have these startup competitions these days. At a minimum, participating in them flexes those muscles really well. And so by the time you graduate, you actually have a very rich way of looking at the world as opposed to, like you were saying, a skewed way, right? Which is just an over-indexing on, on just academia. If you If you put in the work to actually develop those other skills and get the feedback from the market in those ways, then it, it helps you in absolutely enormous ways. Yeah. Well, um, and are there resources in particular that you'd recommend to people uh, outside of doing those? I think the best thing is just try stuff and not gatekeep yourself in terms of like, I have to wait for this type of knowledge or this type of knowledge. You already have a PhD, like you got enough, like go do stuff. But are there books or resources you recommend or like wiring holes on the internet they think would be really good for people who are, it, it could be just PhDs, but I think there's a lot of people in that stage of like, I want to round myself out and, ex, and, and expose myself to do different experiences and maybe join startups or, or lead one. And so I'm curious, like where, where would you recommend they go or what, what would you recommend they read? My general view on these things is like you learn a lot more from just like trying to get on the field than you do from like reading things. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, I think like once you're actually like doing something, then reading actually helps a lot. But mm-hmm. reading as a form of preparation, I'm not sure how much that can help. So like my suggestions more than like uh, sort of like trying to learn more before you go out and actually try to put yourself out into the field is just do as many different things as you can to put yourself in the field. So for example, like the summer internships, trying to participate in business plan competitions during the semester, just reach out to alumni of the school that you go to and say, hey, how did you get into this line of work? People will reply to your cold emails. I, I did so many cold emails and I got a surprisingly high response rate, like over 70% of people would reply to me and give me 30 minutes in order for me to learn what their role was like and what types of roles they're recruiting for and things like that. And so I, I think like, just asking yourself, hey, what are the things that I want to go learn? And then just trying as many different routes to actually doing that is, is actually like the single most useful thing. Now, once you're in it, then yes, actually, you should absolutely be reading in order to very quickly develop a context and a way of thinking that's actually useful in this new regime. So like, I'll just give a simple example. When I first became a manager, the first I read 
just an absolutely inordinate number of books about leadership management. Um, like I read biographies of uh, politicians, like ex-presidents and things like this, just to like really give myself high context on what are things that have worked and don't work and how do people inspire people and things like that. And that was extremely helpful, but that was helpful basically as an accelerant once I was already in a position of managing people, it wasn't helpful to get me into a position of managing people. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. I, I think to, to kind of like expand on a point you made involving uh, reaching out to people, the make it easy for people. I think this is like something that people get wrong and they don't realize they're doing it wrong. But like when you get someone to talk, talk to you, make it easy for them to help you. Like I think sometimes people go in and they're like, like they have like, they ask kind of generic questions. I can tell if someone's like thought, of a question before they talk to me. And I'm like, okay, great. I'm gonna answer that question. But if it's like a very generic, I'll be like, go Google it. <laughs> like, I'm not doing this. Um, so like, if you make it really easy for them to help you and then you're like, you're, you're appreciative, like th- that person, like most people who are giving you 30 minutes want to see you be successful. Like that's why they're doing it. But I think a lot of times people will be like, hey, they, I got this like 30 minutes. And then they'll go and they kind of don't really do the work, which is unfortunate. And then uh, when they, they get the feedback, they're like, okay, and they go about their day. And it's like, just write that person an email and let them know how you did. And I guarantee, like, it'll mean a lot to them. And maybe they can give you further feedback. They'll hear how, oh, you're doing this. So here's some recommendations. Like, if you make it easy for them to help you, they will help you. They're like, that's what, that's what they want to do. Um, I think that's a, a critical thing that I see a lot of people failing on is uh, they, they, they win the, they, they get the win of the, of having, they're doing a good thing about like putting themselves out there, but then they don't know how to like capture that win and, and like seize the opportunity, I think. I, I couldn't agree more. In fact, like when I was first starting my company, I was doing a lot of discovery, right? So I was like trying to talk to as many people as possible. And so I was just like, any way, shape or form, I could get somebody to talk to me was appreciated. And so the amount of prep that I would do is for a half hour phone call, I would do at least three hours of prep before the phone call. So I would know everything about this person's job history. I would know everything about the organization that there was to know publicly. I would look at all of their most recent strategic initiatives. All of the background was done. So I could go in and just ask about the assumptions that I had that were most useful for me to ask about. And then that person felt like, okay, this person really put in the work before they came in here to talk to me. And then afterwards I would do the work too. So after every phone call, not only was there like note-taking and very clear sort of learning style of work that was happening. So, hey, I learned this from this person. I learned this from this person. How do I reconcile these two data points? But then any follow-up with that person was also done in a fast enough fashion and turnaround that we actually maintained a strong relationship. So, yeah, I think that, I mean, I just am sort of doubling down on what you're saying. If you get somebody to respond to you and to give you their time, it is critical that you put in the time you need in order to be extremely well prepared <laughs> because mm-hmm. not being prepared just makes you sound, yeah, it makes you sound like you don't actually understand why you're on the phone call in the first place. Yeah, or you don't value their time or their mental resources. And if you can make it, if you can really make your, if you, all that preparation makes it so you can ask a really simplified question. And instead of them trying to like break it down and understand what you're really trying to get at to help you, you they know exactly, okay, this person's other, you can like you can tell when someone's done the homework and when they're not or when they're BSing. Uh, you know it's fine either way but like people are in different parts of their journey i think 
people people at some point in their lives were silly in that way i'm sure i'm sure i was at some point and i just don't remember it because of the horror of it but uh like you move like if you if you, if you find <laughs> if you find yourself thinking man i did this recently just email them it's like you know as soon as this, this episode is done stop what you're doing email that person say thank you and and say thank you for their patience don't apologize <laughs> Just say because you'll draw attention to your stupidity. <laughs> just, just, just thank them for their patience and and all and all their work. Um, but uh, yeah, so don't just if you. We should just say like if you notice yourself ever making a mistake, just correct it. And on the time, I like if if you say I'm gonna get back to you within 48 hours, get back to me within 24 hours. Like always, kind of like under promise and over deliver. And it's such a simple thing. Like there's a times where I will literally say, I'm going to get back to you by this, this Friday and I get back to them the next day. And I can tell that they were like, wow, this is nice. I didn't think I'd hear from this person so quick. And so it's like a nice little snappy back and forth. And so like you're setting the standard, like what type of person do you want people to see you as? And do you want to be seen as someone who, you know, eh, just define how you want to be seen. And then like, you know, work to that advantage. Like if you want to be a startup founder who has these big impacts, like what type of person is that? Is that a person who sends a message and doesn't show up on time and, and doesn't do the work or, or, or is that, you know, probably someone who shows up in time and does the work and, you know, does what you do. Um, and I think that's just like something that hopefully anyone who's listening, you will not make this mistake anymore. We're giving you the tools. Um, even in like writing the emails, right? Like if you write a really thoughtful email and you can tell, like, I'm sure you get cold emails too. You can tell when someone's like generic, your company is so great. I'm inspired by it. its long history of what like, I get so many of those. <laughs> it's like, I get you don't know what mine is. It's been, a, you know, like for long, I, for the longest time, I actually won't put my startups listed as anything specific, just so I can tell if someone's being me even faster, but it oh, sounds yeah. like you have I, the same problem. This happens to me. Yeah. So I, I, the, the funniest thing that happens to me is uh, investors will reach out for, so, so like one of the things as a startup founder is that like people see, okay, this person was an executive at this company. Now they're starting a company. So it must let's, let's learn more and it might be something interesting for us. And so when investors reach out, you can tell that there's a very widespread. So there are some investors who, I mean, they have done all of their homework. I got one email that that person was able to articulate to me the insights around the business to almost the same level of descriptiveness and granularity that I would do it. Hmm. And it was impressive. Okay. It was extremely impressive. And so that stuck with me. And my opinion of that investor is extremely high because of that. Right. On the other hand, I have people who email me who spell my name wrong and like, or they don't even get the company name right. Or they don't like take the 20 seconds it would take to figure out what the company name is. And that's, I mean, like why why would why would anybody reply to that right so yeah yeah i'm really hoping i spelled your name right in my our last email i'm sure i did but uh no no you did you did <laughs> no, for the longest time i would actually like write emails and then i'd be like oh no did i, did I screw up the name and i'd go back and like i'd like wake up and be like did I, did I put the name wrong because <laughs> it's like the if you get someone's name wrong they hate it like it doesn't it, it, it can be funny if you do it in the right ways but yeah it's, it's pretty bad um and, it's, and I'm glad that investors are, uh, you know, so, so, at least some of them are being respectful in terms of like wanting a partnership. Um, did you, uh, I don't know if we can, we can talk about this, but did that person ever, did you end up like having a partnership with that investor that was thoughtful or, or are they just kind of like an advisor? Uh, no, no, no. I, I just, I mean, I just thank them. So usually okay. what'll happen is uh, when investors reach out, I'll just, I mean, honestly, most of the time I don't 
I don't actually have the time to reply because like basically the question to me is, okay, what is the outcome of this interaction, right? I'm not like at the, at the time that most of these people were reaching out, it was like, I'm not currently looking for funding, right? We're already capitalized to the extent that we want to be capitalized. And so if I meet with this person, like what, yeah, what is the benefit <laughs> of me of meeting with this person, right? It's, it's kind of like that simple. And so I, I just like, usually I don't even reply, but when somebody puts in that amount of thought into an email and then reaches out, it's like, okay, you know, I, I at least want to make sure that I thank you for, for putting in this amount of thought. And then it actually makes it more attractive for me to want to reach out to that person to partner with them in the future when we actually do want to raise funding, right? Mm -hmm. So those are like the really important things is you just spend the 30 minutes doing the background and the homework and it increases the likelihood that as an investor, your deal flow is actually good, right? It sounds like we're, I'm, we're like for people listening, it, it seems like you're kind of demonstrating a lot of the skills that you learned in your PhD life of being very specific and detail orientated. I'm curious, was there anything that was actually, was there anything in particular? I'm sure there's many things that was difficult in the transition, like anything that was like particularly, uh, uh, you know, not great that like you learned and maybe you can tell, tell us like, uh, your oh, yeah. how to change it. Yeah. Oh my God. I think like the number one thing that as I transitioned out of my PhD into the world of business that I needed to like really spend time on is on people management. So, I mean, there is a reason why professors on, on average, okay, look, there's of course, excellent professors who are excellent managers, but the average faculty is not trained in people management. And so the average faculty member is not a great people manager, right? And so that was like by far the skill set that I too needed to develop was just getting better at the skills of people management, which is a very important and it's a skill set that you have you have to actually work on, right? It's not it doesn't come automatic to anybody. And so I think that that was like the the single biggest thing that I needed to work on as I made the switch from academia into the world of business and like on a scale of one to ten where one is horrible let's say like one is early day steve jobs and ten is <laughs> <laughs> like i was a dick but and ten is like when he ten is like a uh, i don't know like a dale carnegie like the guy who wrote the book on how to win friends and influence others so like where do you think you are right now without any delusions of grandeur <laughs> like where in terms of people i think i went i think i went from like a four to an eight that's good. Yeah. Yeah. Are, are, is, is what I would say. Yeah. Because I think I went to the point at which I understood enough about like what is actually important to others. Now, the parts for me that are still challenging are it is very hard for me to have like very high emotion or empathy conversations. I'm I'm just a more sort of mellow personality. Uh, and generally for me, I develop intimacy through work as opposed to through like having personal conversations, right? And so those dimensions are where sort of like I get a minus two. And mm -hmm. so now I'm on an eight. Yeah. That's fair. I think it's also to your, it's the easy, it's probably a very effective way to get to know someone though, you know, like sometimes someone could say, hey, I'm great at this, but you can, if you're working with them, you see it. So it might be just like a very self-serving, you're cutting through the, cutting right to the meat of it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and for me at least, um, and I find this with the people who I get along with the best is 
developing intellectual intimacy is actually a really great way to get to know somebody, right? We spend, I mean, we spend the majority of our awake time working. And so it's like no secret that intellectual intimacy is something that people look for, right? I mean, that's why people listen to podcasts like this one, right? It's because intellectual stimulation is actually something that people like to seek, they look for, so. Uh, I just want to ask um, one nerdy question about like physics and stuff. Um, then we can transition back to like startup stuff. I just like, I have a note of it and I know we're, we'll lose if I don't ask it. Um, do you, like, I guess like do if, so it's like a, an if then statement. Are you currently up on the, like in physics and very deep on it still, or is like the stuff atrophied? And if so, is there like a go-to cocktail factoid that you like to like drop on people to kind of blow their minds about the universe and how, like how it kind of <laughs> operates. That's like non like nonsensical. Like it doesn't operate how you think it would. A lot. I, I mean, I think, I think that I am pretty up to date on what's happening in the world of like material science, physics, uh, especially semiconductor physics. I'm, I feel like I'm pretty up to date because the, the resources that I, I once you know how to read the resources, it's like a skill that you don't lose. And so it's actually like very easy to keep up your foundation essentially. So, so yeah, I, I feel like I'm, I'm quite up to date. On the actual factoid side, funnily enough, every week along with our company update, I send along like a fun science fact of the week. So I have, awesome. I have like, I have like tons for you <laughs> in terms of, in terms of like, things that will kind of just like mildly blow your mind, you know? So, so I'll give you the simplest one, which I like a lot um, because everybody has, has one of these. So everybody has a microwave at home, right? And like, what is the single thing that you're told to not put in the microwave? Tinfoil? Yeah, metal, exactly. Do not, do not put metal and especially don't put foil in the microwave, right? Okay. What is the, when you look at the microwave, right? The walls of the microwave, what are they, what is it made of? Probably uh, like stainless steel or something. Or it's plastic. made of metal. Yeah. Okay. So you're told not to put metal in the microwave, but the microwave is made of metal. Hmm. How the hell, like, how is that possible? How is it possible that the thing is, is like full of metal, but you're told to not put metal in it, right? This is like, a lot of times people don't realize they don't sort of like, hey, wait a second, actually this whole, like the inside of this microwave is metal, but I'm being told not to put metal inside the microwave that doesn't add up, right? And it turns out that it's just because actually the thing that you're not supposed to do is put thin metal, but actually thick metal is totally fine. And it's just because you need enough volume of metal for the heat to dissipate from the surface into the actual metal. So, so what happens in a microwave, the reason things get hot in a microwave is like you get basically vibrations in the case of a metal it's like actually like exciting the electrons and so you just need enough volume for the electron excitation to actually dissipate through the rest of the volume of the metal mm. if you don't have that then that excited electron will spark right it'll basically like leave the metal and it'll spark and that's why foil is really bad because there's no volume for the heat to dissipate into but if you were to just put a ball like a metal ball in a microwave it would be no problem is there a minimal amount you can put in before there's like a spark? Is it like, is that like a known quantity? 
it so i mean it depends on the frequency of the mic so this is this is where it's like you don't want to actually play this game right because (laughs) if you get it wrong now you have a busted microwave right yeah but if you were if you were to put a yeah, if you put a metal ball, then it will be fine, basically. Mm-hmm. And and especially if you put a metal ball inside of a glass of water, then nothing will happen. Yeah. yeah, the water will absorb the microwaves, right? Exactly. Yeah, that is neat. I never thought of that before. So thank you. Um, yeah. I'm going to think about that later, and then hopefully I can find an old microwave to blow up. But um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to test it. Uh, but anyways, uh, if you so you've read a lot of biographies and uh, to mature your leadership. I'm curious if you had to use a biography to describe your leadership style, which one would it be? Like if, so you write a bunch, is there one that, you know, kind of seems similar to what you do? And if so, which one? Wow. Great question. I've never thought about that. Steve Jobs. (laughs) No, I, I, I wish, but (laughs) I, that is unfortunately, unfortunately not my style. Mm -hmm. Um, it's probably a fortunate thing, actually. Let's see. Let's see. I mean, I, my my style is much more. Uh, I would say it's it's like much more similar to like military generals of the past than it is of business leaders today. Mm-hmm. So, like, I would say that the. Yeah, I would say that the closer ones are, and not that I think I am similar to this person, but in style, I think it is more similar to like the the like George Washington approach of leadership than it is to like a business leader's approach to leadership. And and basically what I mean by that is like his his way of thinking about things was really more along the lines of, hey, what are the right ways to deploy people and then you have to have like pretty high trust in people, but you also want to rely very heavily on information gathering as events are shaking out. And so that's like, and, and I mean, basically for him, if you sort of like see his track record, he just like kept deploying the same strategy over and over again. And he just won the one battle that actually mattered, right? It's not actually the case that it wasn't, it, it wasn't necessarily true that he won every battle. It just that he won the battles that mattered. And so I think that, that is like a really good way of thinking about things, which is like, hey, how do I make sure that I understand what are the pieces of information that I need in order to make reasonable decisions? And how do I make sure that I execute when it matters? And it's okay if I lose a bunch along the way. There's a great biography by, I think, Chernow called Washington. I don't know if you've read that one, but I, I'd recommend it to anyone listening who wants to learn more about Washington. It's a fantastic book. Yep. Yeah. I think the, it's really interesting. Like even now we're learning more stuff about him. Like he had a spy ring that people didn't know for long. Like we still don't know who like the, the top spy in, in uh, New York was like even to this day, like that's how, you know, deep his information gathering would go and how secret it was. So that's crazy. Um, all right. So we've been kind of like dancing around a little bit of what you're building on your LinkedIn. It is secret. So to what extent you want to tell us what you're working on right now, or if you want to keep it kind of like, circumspect oh no i mean i on my linkedin so this is actually going back to like our cold email situation which is hey anybody who does like you know 10 to 20 minutes worth of work will like very quickly figure out what the company is so like yeah we can absolutely talk about it so like if they're listening to this podcast they've they're putting in the work so i absolutely want them to know what we're (laughs) we're working on and it's called firm 
commerce, right? Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So yeah. So we're building this company called Format Commerce, and the the idea is we want to actually enable brands to take their commerce experiences to where the consumer is, which we believe is in conversations with creators. So, I mean, sometimes people call them influencers, but like the place where consumers are spending their time is in conversations with creators. And so we want to take commerce capabilities right to the point of that conversation happening and basically like flip the model that occurs today. So today's model is, hey, I have your attention and now I'm going to try to pull you away from the thing that you're focusing on into an ad. And then from that ad, I'm going to try to redirect you to a brand's website. And instead we want to say like, no, we should, we should take the brand and bring the brand to where the consumer already is, which is in that conversation with the creator. And so that's like, that's sort of the key hypothesis for the company is how do we flip the model for how people engage with, with content on the internet? So how would it, so instead of like an ad kind of tag switching them away from what's going on, how would it work under your paradigm? Yeah. So basically it's like, let's just say there's like some sort of creator content that you're looking at. So let's just say it's like, Hey, you're looking at somebody who's like, uh, doing, doing a recipe, right? So there's like all of these like recipe videos on like Instagram or TikTok or wherever it is. Right. And then you're just like, Oh, wow, that's cool. Like I want to like the pan or the mm. uh, walk that this person is using looks really useful in this context. I want to, I want to be able to buy that. Right. And so then when you click on sort of the buy now button, it just immediately pulls up the ability as a partnership between the creator and the brand that makes that pot or pan, like the ability to buy that directly in context. And then once you're done buying it, you go back into the content. Right. And so the whole idea is that instead of sort of taking you on a totally separate journey, how do you stay immersed within the content and actually allow people to transact on the thing that they want to transact on in the moment that they want to transact on it? Okay. So let's say we're watching this on YouTube and we see your hexagons behind you. And um, that's a, you have a brand deal with, uh, I don't know, uh, the hexagon people. And so when, when like, there's like a buy now button, and maybe like a list of items that you have like a brand deal or something in the window and you kind of check on it and it kind of opens up like a panel for you to like buy that really quickly. Exactly. It would be okay. like opening up a panel like this. So then you're like, you know, you're immersed in the content and then you can actually sort of check out um, and then go back to the content. Yeah. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. I've, I've heard of like similar things with like Instagram where if like people yeah. have different clothes and stuff, it'll like show you like, Hey, this is like a, a Reeboker. I, I'm not very in with clothes, as you can tell by my very simple way of dress. Um, but like you have like different ways of uh, seeing like what they're wearing and then like emulate it. I, I think there's someone like Elon Musk, which is funny. Like people have like broken down his like everything he wears uh, and then like copy it and put it on Instagram. <laughs> like you can like pick it and be like, I want his shoes. It's like, I, I'm, I'm glad you like them so much. So you want to literally be in his shoes. So, but um, so I've seen that in a number of places. What, what, is, um, what separates the way you're doing it from how other people are doing it? And I imagine like yeah, you've looked yeah. at, I imagine you've looked at the way they're doing it. There's probably a special sauce that you've seen just in the, in the, like maybe in the, in the gaps or in the gray areas of how they implement that strategy, maybe ineffectively. Yeah. So the most common way of doing it is basically you tag it and then you link the person out directly to the brand's website. So basically okay. let's just say it's like, Hey, you see him and he's wearing Nike shoes. 
and then you click on it and then now it takes you to the Nike website. So there's two things. One is either you get taken to the general Nike website, in which case now you're like trying to find those, those shoes on the Nike website, which is you're not solving the consumer's problem because the consumer intent was, hey, I want those set of shoes. The second is you can take the person directly to the product description page, but now it feels like two disconnected experiences, right? Yeah. So I was actually watching content, but now I see this like product description page, which looks like any other product description page. And so now it feels like I am shopping instead of it feeling like I'm immersed in the content. And yeah. so what that does is it creates like a psych, like from a psycho psychological perspective, it creates a discontinuity in the intent and now what the person is going to do is they're going to browse around and look for other shoes and now intent starts to fade right and so the idea is okay when this person has high intent how do i create an experience that is authentic to the creator or the influencer and the brand at that for that product and then let's solve that problem and then yes if you want to you can create upsell opportunities like that's actually easier to do after the fact but let's like give the consumer what they're asking for in the moment and then create a really smooth process afterwards. Mm -hmm. That's, that's like the idea is like, basically the models today don't acknowledge the content that the person came from that. And that's like the fundamental insight is like, okay, I need to acknowledge the fact that this person is learning about this in the context of this creator. And I'm going to keep that context throughout the entire like commerce and checkout flow. And so that's what we do is we basically like, let's say you're, again, you're seeing this video of an influencer with a pan. When you click buy now, you'll see an image of the influencer with the pan in your checkout, right? So like, instead of seeing again, like just a normal carousel of like different angles of the, of the pan, it's like, okay, yeah, you came from the influencer site, you're gonna see the influencer again. And then, things like that. So we basically make the experience way more immersive. That's, that's the key insight. No, that's really smart. That's really smart. I, I really love this idea because the whole point of what you're buying is the experience. Like people buy Jordans because they love the feeling of being excellent. Like Jordan, they, they buy uh, Mr. Beast burgers because they want to be a part of the fun of getting, being a part of their, like being on his apps and all these other things. So it's like, there's actually a really great YouTube channel Eric and Samar, I think, where they break down like brand deals, like people, like creators that make their content, like create, create something and how well it is as it relates to their content. And so if you can make something that's a part of the experience, it makes people feel like they're a part of it as well, where it's like, hey, so let's say chef knives, um, like if Gordon Ramsay was using chef knives and it says like, hey, you can buy these chef knives and you click it and you see Gordon Ramsay basically there, like you're having a, a continuation of that brand experience. I mean, like I'm basically saying back to what you're saying and it's called Intuit, like you, so something that I have is like when you when you click on something and you go through it, if it's if it's it's already gonna be different. So you're already gonna kind of feel like, oh, maybe I shouldn't be doing this because what if it's like a bad link or um, you know you're gonna have to put private information in or something like that. But if it's like a continuation of that trusted person, like you're gonna trust that website more. And then I imagine the conversion rate is gonna be ridiculously better. And the the creator benefits, the brand benefits, and more importantly than any of those is the the consumer, the user, because they're going to have an experience that they're going to feel good about that. And they're going to feel like they're really a part of that continuous journey with that creator that they started. So that's, that's really powerful. I, 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 I haven't seen it done like that before. So that's really cool. I could see a lot of people getting behind that. I don't, 
So I'm basically just saying I, I love that a lot. So uh, I'm like, I'm a fan. <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah. I mean, you know, the nice thing about talking about these ideas with like um, podcast hosts is that like, I don't need to sell the idea to you that content is what matters, right? It's like, obviously content matters. Otherwise you wouldn't be spending your valuable time hosting a podcast, right? It's, mm-hmm. it's, it's like to, to people who create content, it is plainly obvious that content is super important. And so, yeah, I think that enabling commerce to participate directly in content is, is incredibly powerful. And, and you're right, we're seeing early data from our like alpha customers is showing that like click-through rates and cart fill rates and all this stuff is just like, it's unbelievably good. It's unbelievably good. Yeah. I think it's like every, every click you can remove improves the click-through rate on average by like 20%, like, which I mean, overall it could still be like a 12%, you know, conversion rate, but it's still like every decrease in a click that someone has to click to get to their desired result is a, a significant increase in how many people actually are acquired in terms of like buying the thing. Like I know there are startups that have like seven clicks to buy. Like sometimes if I'm looking at a competitor, I'll literally just sit there and like, I'm gonna buy this. Let's how many clicks do I have to do this? It's like, great, mine's gonna be two. I, I, I win. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, 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 it's true, it's true. I mean, and we, we have the same problem for like our own onboarding process, right? Like mm-hmm. the number of steps right now, because we're a new company, um, the onboarding process right now, like there's there's a number of steps that are manual as we as we automate it. But you know, it is a super important focus for us that as soon as somebody says like, yeah, this is a great idea, we want to make the number of steps as low as possible, as quickly as possible, right? So that way, as soon as somebody decides like, yeah, I, I want to do this, we make it super simple for them to just like start to actually engage with with the platform. Mm-hmm. How does how does a, a a creator engage with your platform? Like how does it work? Um, yeah. Once they're in. Yeah. So I mean, basically, right now, the way that it works is that a creator signs up to the platform, and then today it is manual, but o- over time it'll be automated that we sort of surface interesting brand matches based on their content, right? So we want to like create this sort of engine that generates, hey, here are matches that we think are good partnerships for you. And then we allow either side to sort of do like a double opt-in partnership through us. And then the creator then surfaces the shopping experience in their content. Mm-hmm. So that's like the, that's the, that's the flow is that they sign up first for the platform and then the match with the brand happens afterward. Okay. And then how is it exported into whatever avenue the creator is using it? Like, is it, is it completely handled within, let's say like we're making a partnership. We said, great. We settle on everything. You have pictures of me playing with your hexagons and, uh, <laughs> and can I like click a button and then like, there's a high, there's a link or an embed yeah, that would like go exactly. into my stuff from there. So like, exactly. it's just like really it's streamlined. That, yeah. It's, it's literally that already right now. So like oh, once awesome. we agree, and you just like literally copy a tag of the product and then you put it in. And then we do all of the work of loading the shopping experience that's authentic. Now you can do additional things. Like you can like, like I was saying, hey, you can like send us photos or you can upload photos directly into the platform that as you're scanning through the product carousel images in the checkout, it's like actually photos of the creator with the product to make it more personal. 
Uh, you can like personalize the post checkout experience to make it more authentic to the creator brand partnership. There's like elements of personalization that you can do that make it like super fun and way more engaging. So those add like a few more steps, but honestly, it's, it's like, it's like really easy. It's like the type of thing that you could just sort of do on your phone. Hey, I want to put this image here. I want to put this image here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And imagine if it's that simple, you can be, you're pretty agnostic. Like it could be on like TikTok, it could be on YouTube, it could be on Instagram. Like you can kind of be anywhere that content lives then. Exactly. Okay. Is there like a, a particular use case that you're focusing on in your initial, or are you able to be broad and still focus at the same time? So we actually started with like the hardest one first, which I don't know if it was intentional, but it just so happens to be how we started. So we started with like an in-blog experience, which hmm. by far is actually the most complex from both a technical and partnership perspective, because then you actually have to have blog content. You have to make sure that the actual shopping experience looks really good in the context of the greater blog, as opposed to just solving for Instagram. And then you can just design it so that way it looks really good for Instagram or TikTok and then just design it to make it look good for TikTok, for example. So we chose like the hardest one to start <laughs> and and like solved it there. And so now as we go wide, it's actually very easy mm -hmm. to go wide into other surfaces. Are you able to do self? Like if let's say I want to be on your platform to utilize all these great tools, but I already have products. Like I'm a master of hexagons. You didn't know this. So I want to sell my own hexagons. Um, am I able to like upload everything and let it be created and use these similar things for my own stuff? Or does it, can it, on your platform, are you only able to like, it has to be with other brands, if that makes sense. Can you do your own stuff that you've created and built? This is like one of the things that surprised us actually. So we didn't build the company assuming that people would want to actually use it in their own content, but actually like, yeah, 20% of the brands who we talk to want to actually start using it on their own site with their own products and their yeah. own content, which I, it, it just sort of like took me by surprise <laughs> that, you know, so like exactly what you were thinking, like we had not thought of that use case, but we're just getting pulled into that use case. So we actually have cases where people are embedding our shopping experiences directly in their own blogs or places that they own the content because it's just such a like immersive experience yeah well that would be like the i mean the margins on everything is better that way and then you, you're really really fine-tuning the brand so it's a really awesome continuous experience like you don't even have to integrate with another existing you just you're like facilitating like a decrease in clicks and a, an increase in that conversation experience like that's 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 so powerful uh, are you, um, yeah, the, yeah, go ahead. Oh, the, the, the main risk with focusing only on that is then you're relying on the fact that the brand has its own really strong customer acquisition strategy. Mm. So, so the reason why we really like the creator brand partnerships is because creators are like, by definition, where distribution is happening these days. Right. So like a really strong creator can actually show your product to like thousands of people or millions of people potentially, right? But a brand's own exposure is completely dependent on a brand's own channels for how they get exposure. And so 
like that's that's sort of the trade-off between optimizing for partnerships with creators where creators by like by definition are distribution channels and then brands it it depends on how good the brand's own distribution channels are already so that's sort of the one dynamic that we try to like really help our brands understand is which channels are most effective for them today and how does that affect how they should be thinking about their ongoing channel strategy mm-hmm. and then um what what's like the cost is it you just take like a percentage or do people have to like pay to be a part of like a subscription no we just take a percentage we take like okay. a very small percentage of every transaction and I mean, honestly, I, I feel like I should be charging more because not once has anybody like blinked when I've told them the cost. So, yeah, I feel like you're gonna get acquired by YouTube. Like, I like the. I feel like that, like you'd help YouTube <laughs> make so much more money. Um, yeah, I think I think it is. I think what's interesting for us is we want to be channel agnostic. Yeah. Um, like that's where that's when it gets like really interesting is helping brands across various channels. Um, and, and I mean, we just saw over the last two years, like, you know, two years ago, if we were having this conversation, you would be like, man, feels like you're going to get acquired by Instagram. And then all of a sudden everybody's on TikTok. You, you, you know what I mean? And yeah. so it's like, well, actually, which one is more important? Is TikTok more important or is Instagram more important? And so I think like being channel agnostic is actually super important as we like the world is going to change so fast over the next few years. Yeah. We live in interesting times, which is also a bad thing. If you say <laughs> you live in interesting times, that means you lived in, you live in not good times. There's like good and bad. That's like a, there's a quote about that somewhere where it's like, if you, you want to live in like calm times, or like you want to live in like Hobbiton when like the Nazgul and like all the Mordor people are just like out, not doing anything bad. You're just like sitting there at a pub with nothing going on. Um, but I agree with you in the positive sense. There's a lot of really great things going on. It's a, it's an it's a it's a great time to find like your voice and define it in the world and then share. I mean, there's people that literally that's all their that's all their they just go about their day and they share it and people love it so much that they can make money from it. Like that's basically what the Kardashians. They just go around and I've never seen it. I think my it's wife watches it. A, yeah, I mean, there's a whole bunch the of people. Kardashians. Yeah, yeah, there's like hundreds of thousands of people at this point. I mean, yeah, the, yeah, like the creator economy on the one hand gets a lot of coverage but on the other hand does not get enough coverage you, you, you yeah. know what i mean it's like one of those it's undersaturated it's bigger than you think and smaller than you think at the same time yeah it's, yeah, it's undersaturated there's, there's, yeah there's six hundred thousand people over six hundred thousand people who have over ten thousand followers on instagram meaning there's over half a million people who could make a full-time income off of their instagram feed alone wow i don't know the metrics for instagram i i, I but that's pretty cool there's Isn't a lot wild. of wild. Yeah. That's really cool. Well, uh, this is like a, such a, a, a neat and very important thing that you're building, especially as we're, we're moving into a, an age where people don't really want a normal nine to five job. I, I think a lot of people love the idea of being their own boss and being a part of the creator economy seems like a very effective way to do that. Cause I think being like being a scientist and think being a creative person, I think is just like one of the core things of cognition, some of the core things of cognition. So it's, I think it's built in, baked in to every human. And then it's just like beat out in K through 12. But, but, but I think, I think like, what do humans, I mean, the, 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 the funny thing about it is 
like we think that actually, oh, the economy runs based on utility, but the economy does not run on utility. It runs on inspiration, right? It's like, like yes, the first set of your income goes to, or like your your budget goes towards like your needs, meaning like, okay, I need to make sure that there's a roof over my head and there's food. But like the moment your needs are met, immediately your purchases switch into like inspiration-based purchases or like story-based purchases, right? It's like, why do you go watch a sports game? It's like, we love the stories, right? Why do you listen to other people's stories? Because they either inspire you or they're relatable, right? Why is reality TV so popular, right? It's like, why is, why is selling Sunset doing so well on Netflix, <laughs> right? It's because it's because it's more, it's shockingly more relatable because it feels real, right? Like these people, this is like actually happening in their lives. So yeah, I, I, I think that like appreciating the fact that stories are what move people and, and just tapping into that is way more powerful than the the alternative which is like hey everything is a utility it's like no actually never in human history have we operated an economy based on utility are you um do you envision yourself being a part of the career economy as well or do you see yourself just staying staying on the side of building the sandbox for creators to be effect creators and brands to do their best work like how do you see kind of yourself moving forward uh personally or the company yeah, no you I, what are you doing? Oh, me personally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I view myself as, I mean, I view myself as a creator, actually. Mm-hmm. I, I don't view myself as just like, hey, I'm here just to like build a company to help other creators. So I'm actually like, I mean, nowadays, not that many people go to Quora, but I'm actually one of the most, I'm one of the 100 most followed people on Quora and most read people on Quora. Um, and so, yeah, like my content has been read over 15 million times on, on Quora. So I, I, I definitely view myself as a creator. Like I, I wrote actually quite a, like hundreds of, of, of um, answers, I guess, on Quora about like how to make the most out of your PhD. Yeah, and, and probably millions of people at this point have been able to make different decisions based on what I have written. And so, yeah, I, I like 100% view myself as a creator. And I think that over time, I will continue to spend more time in creative output. And that's actually why I'm doing this too, <laughs> is, is I actually, I actually love creative output. I, I write regularly. I think podcasting is like, I think podcasting is one of the least appreciated formats of, of content. I think it's like incredibly powerful. Um, yeah, I, I, I definitely view myself as wanting to be an active participant. I don't, I think being passive is, is basically not a good strategy. Mm-hmm. So then you're kind of like uh, building a personal brand around your business's brand and it kind of transcend and you can kind of, do. how do you see that playing in the future? Are you going to have like an alphabet and then have like a bunch of different things underneath it? Or are you going to have like a couple of different channels like outlet, um, uh, Outlooks, that's not the word I'm looking for. Outlets, there you go. Outlets for the different things that you want to do. So you have like the business side of it. You have the creative side of it. Um, do you see these, basically, do you see these staying in- independent or are you, are you going to integrate them into like an alphabet type hole like what Google does? I think that they're going to be, in- I think every business needs to have a content strategy. And I think that you can only have a content strategy based on the people 
in that business wanting to actually participate in content. So okay. I, I'm like, um, you know, like HubSpot just acquired the hustle, for example. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I, I like completely agree with the HubSpot's view on this, which is like every business must have a content arm uh, moving forward. And, and I think, I mean, we can, we can sort of dive into this too, but I think especially with the privacy changes coming through like Apple and federal privacy regulation and things like that, I think like it will quickly become not a nice to have, but a must have. Like you, you actually must have a content strategy in order to attract new customers and retain your existing customers. Because I think that with privacy uh, changes that are happening in the ecosystem, sort of like traditional advertising is just going to, I mean, it's just going to not work basically. So, so for people who haven't been paying attention, and this has definitely been something we want to jump in on, what are the privacy changes that you're talking about in particular? There's a, there's shield. There's, I think there's like two different things on the, are there like two different bills in California? There's one in Cal. Okay. Um, what are the ones that you're specifically referring to and what's the impact that you think it's that you expect it to have? Um, yeah. 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 So, I mean, I think that there's like, okay, so actually you basically covered the whole gamut, but there's basically like three different facets of privacy that are important right now. The first is what are private companies doing? So Apple has made really strong moves in terms of increasing the stronghold on how much like privacy you must give a consumer, right? So they did this thing where when you open your iPhone and you open an app, it says like, do not ask app not to track me, right? And so this is like a whole thing that they did. That's like number one, because I had a massive impact on basically on the internet. Mm-hmm. The second is like government regulation. So you're right. So California has the CCPA and CPRA, which is basically, these are legislations around data protection and basically giving consumers an opportunity to opt out of any sort of data collection on them. And then the third one is like federal and international privacy regulations. So there's currently bills that are happening or bills that are under discussion at the federal level. And then of course there's like GDPR that's happening in Europe and that privacy shield, which impacts the transfer of data between Europe and the US. So if you have a multinational business, it makes it really complex for you to operate that multinational business if it relies on transferring data between the two countries or between the two, this is uh, like parts of the of the world, right? So, so there's like three levels, but I think the most important one, ironically, is the company one, which is what Apple and Google are doing. And they are basically saying, hey, if you use our devices or our applications, we are going to prevent you from tracking people if they say like no to tracking. And this has demolished a lot of the old models because basically, I mean, probably you've seen this, but like, unfortunately, like D2C e-commerce businesses, their ability to acquire new customers has gotten impacted very severely. Uh, So much so that like some of these businesses, their market caps have been cut by like 90%, right? Mm -hmm. Like there was this company Wish and their market cap is down like 95% from IPO. Wow. So it makes it harder for people to generate data well have generate data generated on them which is then sold and aggregated around so then conversely it's probably harder to make targeted ads to those people so then the most consistent way to have ads brand deals etc is to go strictly to the content creators and the distributors 
um, to have those brand deals and have the specificity with that versus casting a, like, it's like trawling for fish where you just like put a net down and try and grab as much as you can as it used to be or the shotgun effect, which is what it used to be. Now it's moving to an age of more specificity, which should have put a lot more control on the consumer's end about even just where you go online in the, for the oasis or the content that you consume will determine like what you see. And as someone who hates like random commercials to the point where like, I'll turn off the TV if one shows up, uh, for the longest time, I did not see commercials like five years. I never saw a commercial and I loved it. And then we got a TV, but, um, uh, I hate seeing ads for things I don't like, but I'd love to see an ad for something I do like. Um, so it's like, yeah, or yeah, exactly. And it's, yeah, I think you're exactly right. Which is if you're watching content, you want to actually immerse yourself in that story. And then if you're inspired by what that person is talking about, because you've opted into that content, then you want to be able to make the transaction. But yeah, like regular, I mean, especially ads that follow you around, I think people have just gotten, uh, the, the sentiment has shifted basically, right? Which is why Apple is able to make these changes that say like, hey, do not track and do not do not track me across sites and therefore do not like keep showing me the same ad as I like browse the internet, which is the same thing Google's going to do next year. Mm-hmm. And that's basically the internet. If you have Apple and uh, Google, I don't know how many people go to Bing. Does Bing still exist? Bing exists, but like no one uses yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, but it's just... <laughs> Yeah, it's like single single digit percentage of the internet, basically. Mm-hmm. So. I mean, privacy was such a big deal. I had a, 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 my, one of my previous startups was a privacy preserving startup. Like that's how big of a deal it is. And I think DuckDuckGo was literally the antithesis of Google because they were more privacy preserving. But now Google's going in that direction. So I wonder what's going to happen with DuckDuckGo. I'll probably should email that CEO and see how he's doing. But um, it, it, overall, it's going in the right direction. The um, Just... As a like a taking a step back for for things um, for you personally and for your business, are there people you're specifically looking to talk to to learn either uh, alpha beta customers or um, uh, I mean even like consumers of content? Like, are you are you looking to have conversation with people in particular for your business to help it out, or are you in the execution phase and you're not necessarily doing market research? Like, what where where can people listen and help you out? I guess. Yeah, 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 yeah. So we're we're probably more in the execution phase at this yeah. point. So like we have like, you know, dozens of brands who have signed up to the platform that were like sort of in the process of getting them live with creators in order to like do their initial work with us. And so we're definitely, yeah, we're like definitely in execution. I think the main way that people can help out is if they sort of have like particular ideas of like, hey, this brand does like really excellent work with creators. We really recommend you have a conversation with them. Like those types of specific insights are, are really useful. Um, and so, so that's, that's sort of where I would say is like the place where we want to like really grow our, our execution is just sort of figuring out because it's like a, one of those things that's very hard to discover is like, hey, which brands are like having excellent pre-existing creator relationships. And then the second side is basically connections into agencies that are really good at running creator campaigns where basically our tooling can actually help those agencies execute even higher quality campaigns and better measurement on those campaigns. And so we think that those are basically the next, the two next steps that are going to be most impactful to the business and to the growth of the business. Is it from, just the last question on creator stuff, I, um, 
will people be able, after you've established a certain level of depth of deal flow of like opportunities for brands that are quality, how will people know if those are quality brands when it's like, let's say you are really, really affected what you're doing and you have like an Apple marketplace of, in terms of like brands for, for people to, to uh, partner with, how will people know the quality of the brands and how the, how will the brands know the quality of the potential partnership? Is there a, like a trust measure uh, me- metric of some kind that's going to be a part of the platform as well? This is, this is like the single, okay. So this is like the best question about the creator economy because today the, the way that brands and creators like understand each other is actually very, with very minimal data. So the way that a brand chooses which creators they want to work with is they look at the engagement and the way that they measure engagement is of the people who view the post, how many people either like or comment on the post, yeah. right? Which is actually not a great metric for actually understanding what is the likelihood that somebody will purchase my product if this creator were to promote it, yes. right? It'd probably be depth, like how long they stay on that, that video or uh, content, right? Well, I'm just actually, guessing. So in, I'm interrupting, I'm sorry. I mean, they're all, they're all sort of proxies and they're all like pretty bad proxies. Mm-hmm. But the best proxy is, how much of a similar product has this creator sold previously, mm, right? Okay. That's actually the best proxy. It's like, if I'm a pots and pans company, has this person sold other home goods effectively, right? That's okay. actually the question that you're like truly trying to answer, right? You don't actually care about any, I mean, nominally, you don't care about anything else as long as it's authentic to, the, to that creator's audience and to that creator's persona, right? Mm. And, and because we are building the actual commerce experience, we will be able to answer that question. We will be able to answer the question of how effective that person is at selling through the types of products that you want to sell as a brand. And conversely, as a creator, what do you actually care about? You wanna care about, you care about showing things to your audience that your audience feels like, hey, this is actually gonna help me, right? And so the creator actually wants similar data on the brand. The creator wants to know like, hey, is this brand actually going to sell through to my audience? Meaning like, does my audience care about this stuff? And so we will have data on both sides about sell-through and that will be the basis of very high quality partnerships because ultimately that's what actually matters. Like, you know, commenting or liking is great, but it actually doesn't move the needle for either side. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. I could see that you know, being really effective. I think one other uh, quality, unless like you guys manage like the whole deal flow and everything, maybe you do everything. I think there's like an element of like, there's a lot of creators that get screwed over by brands. And um, I imagine there's brands that get screwed over by creators. So it's like, it's a two-edged sword, but I, I hear from a lot of creators where this happens. So is is your platform also able to like, I don't know, regulate, like not the right word, but um, control for those, like, let's call them like jerks or like, there's a word I would use, but like, it's probably not appropriate. Um, <laughs> so so in what, in, in maybe you could just like help me understand, like in what way, is like the misdealing happening. So I've heard of a lot of people where they'll have a brand deal and they'll put like their ads and stuff. They basically do all the work of putting the, the, the ads in their content and embedding it and doing a lot of the, the stuff. But then when it comes to like pay them or to do any of that type of like fulfillment of the brand's responsibilities, it's like they have to like harass them to get it done. And they're always really slow. At the end of the, and there's always kind of a, sometimes, not all the time, I'd say, you know, of a lot of the creators that I've, I speak to, there's maybe like 30, that 30, 
thirty percent of the time when they have brands, thirty percent of the brands. This is a these are, these are made up statistics. I can like query people to see how often this actually is. But I say like thirty percent of the time, um, they're having like a, a bad brand deal and they have to cut them and they never do it again. But that still is like missed out time and opportunity that could have gone to something else. So then like that's, that's a true. significant that's risk. Yeah. So I'm just I'm just generally curious like how how would that be accounted for or is it just like the law of the jungle a so, little bit? Uh, I mean, I hope it's not the law of the jungle, but I, I think that, well, one of the things that our platform does is we, we actually take, so for affiliate fees, for example, so if you say, hey, I owe, I owe the creator like 15% of every transaction that happens that they bring to me, like we actually take that at the point of the transaction. So the way that we build the, because we are building this deep integration with the brand, we don't actually have to like do collections after the fact. We can do it like the moment the consumer mm. places the transaction, we collect. So the brand actually doesn't even see the money. We just take it directly at the point of transaction. So the one good thing is that we actually de-risk the accounts payable side by actually doing the charge at the point of the transaction. Okay. And then the second thing that we do is that we actually facilitate the payment. So if the brand wants to like facilitate the payment through us, we can do that pretty simply. We work with partners in order to enable that, but like this is actually one of the things that I really think is useful about the platform. And by actually building these like deep integrations on both sides is over time, you'll build a data asset. And so, yeah, if there are like, if we have bad actors, like we can actually make an active decision to say like, hey, actually like you're not treating the other side of our ecosystem in a fair way. So either you actually like make good on what you owe at this time or we have to like start to make another set of decisions about participation in the platform, right? So the nice thing is about like sort of building deep integrations is that you can actually manage the ecosystem in a way in which is actually healthy and shows both sides trust because you're right. Like the biggest problem in the creator economy right now is that but neither side has a good reason to trust the other side. And on top of that, neither side knows what the sell through is going to be on the other mm -hmm. side, right? There's like such low data availability that it actually makes these partnerships very hard to do. And so our whole, our whole model is based on, hey, let's actually embed the transaction in order to build this transparent data asset and then push all of that data out into the ecosystem. Mm -hmm. Makes a lot of sense. I, I think your platform has a lot of potential and I, I if you need like a guinea pig or anything, you're welcome to like hit me up and I'll uh, I'll uh, give feedback and stuff. Because um, I think this is very powerful and very much a need that a lot of people have, especially as more and more people are getting into the to the economy. Um, so I know we're coming close to the end. So I'm going to jump, uh, skip a number of topics that we're not going to get to today <laughs> and ask my rapid fire end of uh, end of thing questions. Um, so first of all, sure. Um, do you have the team that you need to execute on this? Are there people or skill sets that you're looking for um, that you need on your team? So maybe someone listening will know someone or there'll be someone who can play. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, we are almost at the point at which we have like a really well-rounded team. We are still trying to like finalize a really like A plus front-end engineer is what I would say. Because like, as you can imagine, if you're building consumer experiences and experiences for creators it needs to be like really high quality front-end engineering and then the second type of person is we actually have like a lot of people on the platform and so we need help with account management so i think that those are the two uh roles right now that we are looking for 
account management or like community management where like they're trying to build a community at the same time or like just like managing i guess the personalities of the businesses and stuff luckily we already have a we just made a hire for a head of community. So okay. this is more like account management, but you're exactly, you're, you're, yeah, you're, you're thinking is exactly right with this type of a company and platform. You absolutely need like an amazing community management style of thinking. Yeah. Uh, what's the tech stack that you'd want like a front end person to have? Oh, it's, we're just building in react. So oh, I, I think like fun. most people, sorry. Yeah. React's fun. I didn't know if yeah, it was like yeah. an obscure Python or something. I don't know. No, 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 no. It's like, yeah. I mean, luckily I feel like most like solid front end engineers are going to have like no problem basically. <laughs> yeah. So, Sweet. Yeah. All right. Then what is a, what's a problem that you're having personally, professionally that you'd love someone's help with? It can be broad. It can be small. It could be silly. I don't know. Uh, but like, what's a problem that you're having right now? Hmm. That's a good question. I would say that like right now, the hardest problem from a professional standpoint is like trying to actually, um, yeah, trying to figure out these like questions of scales. So like we we're fortunate that a lot of people want to work with us right now. And so like really, really figuring out how do we like answer these problems of scale that we have, it's like a really hard problem that we have. And then on the personal side, I think like <laughs> I, I, you probably get this answer too often, but I, I wish that there was like a way to create more hours in the day. So I have, I mean, not only do I have this business, but I also have like an eight month old daughter. Oh, and so between the, thanks. Yeah. So between the two, it's like, I am like trying really hard to make sure that I make time for everything in the right ways. And it's just, it is so hard to do that. It is so hard to do that. Yeah. Mm. If you, if you send me like an Excel spreadsheet of your time, I can like audit it for you and give you some feedback if you want. <laughs> That's something I can do for you. <laughs> that is awesome. Yeah. yeah. I, I, you know, what's funny is that I, I literally actually did that once, mm. um, in, in my previous role, I was like so incredibly busy that I actually, I literally had somebody do an audit because it's hard to do an audit yourself Yeah. because you don't actually like see things that other people can see. And so, yeah, it, it was actually very useful. So that's actually like a very helpful suggestion. <laughs> yeah. Well, and like an, uh, the ability to see it and then like a weighted measure of the individual sub items. So like, if you have like, like 10 things you do in a week and you just order, organize them from like one to 10. And then I saw what you're doing. And then I, and like, you had like a complex complexity, like quotient in there. I, I could probably like audit you pretty good. Um, my, my wife, this is a funny story. She's going to listen to this and she'll know that I'm making fun of her. When I first met her, she was like 4.0 student. I didn't make her less of a 4.0 student just for record. But like, um, she was like such a busy person. And I was like, let's just sit down and look at your schedule. And I helped her free up so much of her time that by the end of it, she was able to, she just started like binge watching Netflix. And I was like, why don't you make friends? Like, <laughs> like you have more time now, like go do fun things. Um, but like <laughs> usually, awesome. usually a statement, like uh, I think a lot of people, have weird time management uh, techniques. Um, but all right, so what is a question that you have that is unanswered that you love to have the answer to? And so one that I have, and I'm just putting this out there if you want to email me this answer sometime, but what would be here if the Big Bang never happened? Like, let, you know, like if you just like put your, put like your finger in, in like the dam and nothing, like what would be here without the Big Bang? That's something I wonder about. Your physics person, maybe knows someone knows, but what's a question that you have that you do not have the answer to that maybe someone can answer? Oh, wow. I love that question. Um, 
I think that like the thing that I have started to gain the most appreciation for is actually like uh, human questions. So I, I think like the biggest question for me these days is just like, what are the things that fundamentally underlie like human motivation development? So like, and I think about this a lot because of my daughter now. So it's like, hey, what are the things that over the experience of somebody's life will determine what actually motivates them. And yeah, I, I, that that's something that I like work, I think about all the time, both like in the capacity of, of leadership and in the capacity of like, hey, I wanna make sure that as my daughter grows up, she like wants to, she like has fulfilling ways to do the things that she wants to do. Mm. So yeah, that's like the thing that I wonder about the most is like, what are the set of things that, um, somebody can do or experiences somebody has that leads to how they get, how they choose, how they get motivated uh, mm. in, in, in their work, in their personal life, whatever it may be. That's interesting. I'll have to think about that. But if anyone has any ideas, you email me or you, I think you're probably on Twitter, but um, then uh, what are your, what are your go-to books or resources that you recommend to people? Oh man. Okay. This one I have off the top of my head. So <laughs> like the single most if, like um, influential book I've ever read is Long Walk to Freedom, Nelson Mandela's autobiography. Oh, it's a good book. Yeah, it's, it's I mean, book. well, yeah, I mean, you know, you don't get anything in life without putting the work in. So <laughs> oh, no, no, no. I think it's like a, an appropriately named book. It's a long yeah, walk. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. That's I'm, making like a, I'm making a bad joke. <laughs> it is, it is definitely, it is definitely a chunky book. It is definitely yeah. a chunky book. So yeah, I mean, I think Long Walk to Freedom is like the single most impactful book I've ever read. Uh, the second one is Eviction. So it's actually written by a professor at Princeton who happens to be somebody who studies eviction. But that, so, so Long Walk to Freedom, I think is like the best book you could read about like human motivation and leadership and just like somebody's raw story in, in like the most inspiring way. Eviction, I think is like basically like masterful storytelling. So this guy, he's like a professor, but he tells stories about people facing eviction in, in Milwaukee. And he intertwines that with the data around his research in like the most beautiful way. So I think that's the second one. And then the third one is um, high output management. And the reason I love this book so much is like Andy Grove, who was like the CEO of Intel for a long time and took Intel in, in, through its transition from memory into uh, processors like has this very scientific approach to like how to run a company and you can learn not only a lot about how to run a company from that book but also just like how to think about people problems with like very uh like quote-unquote simple frameworks awesome i'm gonna check out two of them because i've let read long work walk to freedom and if anyone else it'll be in the show notes you can just click and buy them i get no affiliates because i am Lazy, I'm gonna use your platform and probably that'll be making everything easier. Um, what is what is a thing coming up? And think, you know, just placeholder. Is there what is coming up that you want to draw people's attention to the audience to if we were to put it to a point that you uh, want us to know about? And then where can we go to learn more about it? Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, we're actually gearing up to finally, like you mentioned earlier, we are not, we're like, I would call in soft stealth because we're still doing our private alphas, but we're hoping that by July we will actually have our public launch. And so, yeah, I think in the 
in the coming like couple of months, you should actually see us go public. And then we would love to have people like, you know, there's a lot of people probably listening to this who are creators themselves or who are working at brands. So if you can directly participate, that would be great. Or if you just have a creator who you love and want to like see whether they're actually using the format platform, then that would be awesome. And that was Rasheed Jane. Uh, thank you everybody for joining today with this episode of the Learn with Lowell show. Remember to check out our website, learnwithlowell.com, as well as the YouTube channel. Look up my name. You'll find it. Also, additionally, it's all in the show notes. Uh, his company, his email, everything's going to be in the show notes as well. Just make it really easy for you. Anything that sparks your interest or sparks your curiosity, uh, message me. Tell me about it. I really uh, thrive off of the engagement so I know how to do a better job or, or uh, continue to do a good job depending on how your feedback is. And I hope each of you has a great day and you stay curious as you navigate your uh, the rest of your day. I hope everyone has a great rest of your day and I hope you stay curious.